And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. There is no Joe Devine. He is on annual leave, so we have been left with the responsibility of recording the pod. Anything could happen. Hello, Alex. Hello, Seb. How are you doing? I am doing fine. I do hate sort of hosting the podcast, though. It makes me nervous. <laughs> it feels like I don't know where I go. I start speaking and it just goes in any direction. Anyway, we're going to talk about all kinds of things. So we, we kind of had a, a little bit of a different approach this time. Um, Alex and I watched a lot of different games. I think the only game that we actually watched together was Arsenal-West Ham. Not together, yeah. but, you know, at the same no. time, of course. Social so we're just going to go... was observed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can subscribe to The Athletic UK right now for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts. Actually, Alex, I was reading uh, Matt Slater's account of Wigan's time and administration. Absolutely fascinating. And that is a put great a, article. Really yeah. good article. And I, I mean, really put a new spin on what administration is because I, I kind of associate sort of grey-faced, boring men, you know, sort of churning through emails and uh, filofaxes. And it, it, it was just interesting to hear a kind of, um, you know, a proper textual account of what goes on in that situation and just how difficult it is. And if you want to read our, that article or other articles like that and of a similar standard, just go to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. So we're just going to go around Europe, uh, check in with a few games, check in with a few talking points and have a bit of a natter. Hope you enjoy it. I did not watch Bournemouth against Southampton. Why should I care about it? <laughs> um, well, apart from the fact that the mighty Southampton are now through to a semi-final, um, which is, and we discussed this at the time, didn't we, briefly? Is it a good thing or not? Um, there's always an argument that, that teams that are potentially close to a relegation battle, if not sort of in it, on the one hand, maybe they benefit from the momentum and the positivity that comes from a cup run. On the other hand, it's an additional set of games and Southampton have, have struggled with uh, a thin squad. Um, but no, I suppose the, the main point was Nathan Redmond. Nathan Redmond had a superb game, scored twice, uh, a beautiful assist for, for Mr. Gineppo as well. And it, it sort of struck me that he he excelled against a championship club, albeit a good one. Um, and this is not the kind of performance that we've seen from him regularly in the Premier League. And I guess there are a group of players, uh, Dwight Gale is another one that springs to mind, that seem to be maybe slightly too good for the championship, but not necessarily good enough to consistently deliver in the Premier League. And 
And I think that was one of the odd things about this performance was you could see you could see what Redmond is capable of doing on his day, um, but too rarely he he takes a Premier League game by the scruff of the neck in that way. He's a bit of a conundrum, isn't he? Because there have been points during his Premier League career where you think, goodness, you're a really, really good player. I remember the um I remember that surge in form shortly after Ralph Hassenhutel joined Southampton. And if I'm right in remembering, I think he, he was used mainly through the centre um, and he was given much more responsibility. Whereas previously under a succession of Southampton managers, he seemed to be either working off the left or the right. And in a team that I'm thinking particularly under uh, Pellegrino and probably Claude Puel were quite slow moving. And he just seemed to be, he seemed to be so well suited to kind of a fast transition system. Yeah, totally. Um, he's, I suppose that, you know, the, the thing that he's very good at is is carrying the ball, making these dynamic runs. Um, I think what, what was so nice for the assist for Gineppo in this game on Saturday was the ability to pause and then release the ball at exactly the right moment. And sometimes I think in the Premier League we see Redmond is too hurried in his decision making. So you still get the dynamism, you still get the ball carrying threat, but then there's a lack of end product from that. Maybe that's because he had a, a little more time on Saturday against a, a defence that wasn't perhaps at, at the same sort of level that you would regularly expect from a, a Premier League defence. But I think also this positional point that you make is, you know, Redmond, I, I suppose he sort of struggled to fit in in any given position and, and make it his own. Um, he does have an ability to cut inside and come off the wing in that inverted 4-4-2 that Hasenhutl likes. Uh, he can certainly play as, as a wide attacking player. Here he was operating more through the centre, like you say, and and dropping off um, and then turning to, to drive forwards with Gineppo sort of coming around outside him. But none of those positions immediately suggest themselves as where he should be playing all of the time. And I, and I think that's the problem with someone like Redman is, is he has the ability every so often to change a game with a piece of skill or a piece of ball carrying, but he's not nailing anything down. And I think in every position that he could play, Southampton have better alternatives. On a different note, you weren't terribly fond of Sam Sturridge. You've got quite a defamatory note <laughs> in our little pod plan here about his activities on Saturday afternoon. It's, it's not Explain defamation yourself. if it's not defamation if it's opinion. Um so there's there's a moment where um Salisu, some pretty definitive words in this sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the audience are now going, oh what did he say? Um yeah so so Salasu is is drawn off to the left hand side um covering over uh for a fullback Bertram pushing forwards and he clears the ball and he's off balance um, and Sturridge comes in very, very late um, and catches him with kind of both elbow and shoulder. But there is absolutely no way that Sturridge is getting anywhere near the ball. Um, there's about 10 minutes of the game left, Bournemouth are 3-0 down. Like it's, you, you sometimes see these late challenges that, that push players over the hoardings that are around the outside of the pitch in the course of play. And I don't really understand the point. I, I Like, I know at the beginning of a game, maybe you want to put down a physical marker or, on an opponent and say, hey, I'm here, welcome to the game kind of thing. But as as the game gets deeper and deeper and, and 
you know, players are surely aware that there's very little point in at that point putting down a market. It just seems unnecessarily aggressive and it's how players get injured. And I think in this season particularly, when uh, injuries have been pretty high, that kind of stuff just just is very unwelcome and pointless. Yeah, I, I agree, actually, because I think um, this might be terribly naive and, and wishful of me, um, but it seems as if during this season there should be a little bit more community spirit. Like everyone's in it together, we're all sort of trudging through this endless season, absolutely knackered. Do you know what I mean? It's, it seems a bit sort of mean-spirited to be No, I, th- I think so. And, and you know, don't get me wrong. I think if there's, like I say, if you're city- seeking in, in the early stages of a game to, to physically dominate an opponent, that is a, a part of football that I absolutely understand. But there is something about these sort of late charges. You sometimes see it when uh, when a player is shepherding a ball out for a goal kick, that kind of thing, and, the, and then the attacker goes through the back of them. There is no effort to win the ball there. Um and I just don't really understand, short of genuinely seeking to injure a player, and I'm not suggesting that that's what Sturridge was trying to do, and, and I think actually, by and large, most footballers are not trying to do that. But but maybe maybe the desire to, to impress, to, to show keenness, to show uh, work ethic kind of spills over. And, and this season, like you say, with congested fixtures, with, with the the issues that everyone's had with the lack of preseason and that kind of stuff, you would just hope that, that players were maybe a little more collaborative in their approach to one another's well-being, um, which is why I said that Sam Sturridge was what he was. Okay, we shall move on from Sam Sturridge. We'll have a little bit of a break and then we're going to come back and I'm going to rant about the state of Bundesliga defending. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. So the reason I didn't watch Southampton Bournemouth is obviously because I'm cool and European now. Uh, but also because I found the Bundesliga conference channel on German Sky, which kind of lets you, which as, as it sounds, basically, it's like a, um, it's like a domestic version of the um, the Champions League goal show on BT. It's absolutely brilliant. You just because German football still has quite a lot of kind of Saturday afternoon kickoffs. You just bounce around the grounds, catch up with the goals, get a little alerts when a goal's been scored in another game. It's terrific. And in this instance, uh, it also alerted me to one of the best own goals I've seen in a really, really long time, which um, which came at Eintracht Frankfurt, who were drawing 1-1 with Union Berlin um, about 15 minutes before half time. Ball was kind of in the um, the shallow right position of the Union, uh, Union half of the pitch. And the right back just turned around without looking and absolutely smashed the ball at his own goal. <laughs> and didn't think to look up to see where his goalkeeper was. It was a it was a Frank Sinclair special for for older 
listeners who remember that weird period of time when Frank Sinclair, when he was at Leicester, just could not stop scoring really weird own goals. Uh, yeah, awful, awful. And it also made worse by um, the Union Berlin goalkeeper just losing his feet. He tried to kind of recover his position and just slipped, fell on his ass, and just watched haplessly and helplessly as the ball just trickled into his own net. And then there was another three goals before half time, which is very strange. The point I wanted to make, though, is that Bundesliga defending is an absolute mess. Every game I seem to watch at the moment, there is a, an absolute calamity. There was um, uh, the less said about um, Bayern Munich's win uh, over Stuttgart, the better, really, because you, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be losing a game like that when you've got a man advantage. Alfonso Davis obviously sent off at nil nil, and then somehow they still lost four nil. But I watched um, I watched Cologne against Dortmund, and Thomas Meunier came up with a horrible error for um, for Cologne's second goal. Um, and there's just sort of there's something about I I I don't know whether it was sort of um, individual mistakes, but on Sunday there was also some terrible moments in in Bayer Leverkusen's loss to Hertha Berlin. Just kind of lazy defending, like players waving legs at attackers rather than trying to actually tackle them. And just a real absence of positional acumen and just just all kinds of just atrocious defending. Uh, just atrocious defending that you would never tolerate if there were if it was if, if the conditions were normal at the moment or if there were supporters in the stands. You just it would just be horrendous to, to kind of the the point I'm trying to make, uh, without talking myself into another cul-de-sac again. Um is that it just it feels as if like the lack of tension in stadiums uh, mixed with the cumulative fatigue of what it is to play in this season, the number of games and the lack of rest and the absence of any you know proper recovery period, it's just led to this kind of incredibly loose standard of defending. Like, do you agree with that? It, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think there is definitely a degree to which individual errors can often be explained by fatigue, loss of concentration, you know, you see players doing things that they ordinarily wouldn't do. I do also wonder if this is compounded to a degree by uh, the sense that, that teams have to be increasingly tactically complex, that they have to play out from the back. Um, you know, there's the number of games that I've seen recently where teams invite pressure onto themselves because they because they want to play out from the back. And, and I know, like... This sounds a little bit like old man shouts at cloud, doesn't it? Because the idea that teams this shouldn't... This is kind of what this podcast is. I hate to well, break it to you a couple of years in. It's, it's, this, is, this is not my general vibe. But no, I mean, you know, playing out from the back is, is something that uh, a lot of good teams try to do and do effectively. And there seems to be a cadre of, of commentators that almost kind of lick their lips about the potential of a mistake around that and then go, ah, well, you see, I told you, you should just, you know, just hoof it up, um, get it clear. But I find I, that annoys me so much, Alex. When sure. Oh, you, totally. You sort of, well, you have all these, I mean, from a ratio perspective, you have you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of successful exits. And then one player makes a mistake and all of a sudden you've got some kind of 50-something ex-pro chipping in with his kind of no bang it 70 yards into the stand that, opinion. The, the issue with that, and I and I completely understand where you're coming from and I agree with you, but because football is such a low-scoring game, if you make in the course of a game 50 exits that work and you make one that doesn't and that's what leads to a goal, that is a really difficult balance to achieve. And I think you were, you were talking on Twitter, was it last night, about Joe Roden? 
Um, and the idea that you see, I do pay attention to what you say. Yeah, you do. Um, no, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> about you know how ball playing centre backs should be afforded the opportunity to make mistakes, and I completely agree with that in principle. But it is also, you know, commensurately when they do make a mistake that that results in the goal, and obviously Roden his mistake didn't. But you can understand why that becomes a disproportionate problem and this is you know this is a function of football like when we were talking about the Atalanta free kick in the last episode there is a disproportionate weight put on events that lead to goals because goals happen so infrequently that is just a function of a low scoring game and so it's a very easy narrative to build up that that was a genius free kick or that such and such a ball playing centre-back shouldn't play out from the back because they concede goals and you know, I, I, I noticed this Chelsea Atletico Madrid. The only time Chelsea looked vulnerable was when they tried to play out from the back. Uh, you have seen it with Arsenal recently. You've seen it with plenty of teams. And I do wonder if this kind of combination of tactical demands that are difficult enough to realise even when you're in peak physical condition because the game is increasingly tactically complex... You then couple that with uh, maybe a lack of focus that comes from a lack of fans, with the exhaustion of the season, with the fact that systems like that really work best when it's a regular, consistent first eleven that all get used to one another. And of course, there's rotations and there's chopping and changing because of, of injuries and wanting to rest players and stuff. And and sometimes simple isn't the worst thing in the world, you know? And it does try and it does allow teams to avoid these kinds of errors. Can I make a counterpoint quickly? Because this Please is do. a little bit this is a little bit of a bugbear of mine. So I agree, like sometimes simplicity is a virtue. On the other hand, and we're, we're gonna talk about Arsenal West Ham in more depth a bit later, but there's a at the moment in the Premier League, there's a spate of teams who um who do believe in simplicity and who at the slightest opportunity will just push the ball long because it's better out of our defensive third than in it. And if we take risks with the ball in that area of the pitch, we're going to concede goals. And I, I'm not quibbling with that. That's that's very true. The counterpoint though is that I believe that kind of exiting out of defense with short, you know, retention phases is a really important part of A, um, quelling uh, attacking pressure like changing the momentum of a game, but also allowing physical recovery because you drop the pace of a game. Whereas if you bang the ball long, and I, I, I appreciate that not, not every team is just trying to pick out somebody in the stand. Um, but generally speaking, if you go long, if you play a pass over instead of 50, 60 yards, it's going to get hoovered up by the opposition centre-backs and the other team's going to reset and they're going to attack. And West Ham Arsenal was a really good example of that for me because if you look at what happened in both halves, like West Ham's performance um, from um, zero to about 40 minutes or whenever Lacazette scored his first goal um, to the rest of the game, I, I think that's kind of demonstrated. You have to, particularly during this season, you, you just can't seem to absorb the punches in the same way. Eventually, there's this inevitability about the way certain teams are defending at the moment. We've talked about Spurs probably too much, so let's move away from them. But West Ham were this weekend's example of that for me. And... I don't know. I, I think whilst acknowledging the risks that come with playing out from the back, like I see it as a, yeah, as a recovery phase, consolidating, allowing people to, um, allowing people, uh, allowing different players to recover in a way that sort of allows their concentration to, um, 
to stabilize. If a player has been constantly asked to run, cover, press, yeah. uh, back up at fullback, for instance, I'm thinking maybe of like a wide midfielder. If you ask him to do that over 70 minutes, he's going to make a mistake because that's the relationship between fatigue and decision making. So I don't know. I, and I appreciate I'm, I'm, I'm explaining this from the outside and, you know, it, it, it's, it's a little bit theoretical, but it makes sense to me. And that's kind of why I like it. It feels a bit more controlled. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And this is something that, um, that I think, for example, Liverpool excelled at last season. Exactly. Where yeah. they, you know, that there would be very, very fast starts to games. And Liverpool always had the ability to increase the tempo, become more vertical and more direct when they wanted to. But also, if you watch Liverpool games consistently, it wasn't hell for leather from minute zero to minute 90. Um, they would have fairly sustained periods of of reducing the tempo, I think for exactly that kind of reason. Um, and yes, really good teams are able to not just to use build-up as an opportunity to pull the opposition out of position, and that's particularly the case if you're playing against a team that likes to engage a press high up the pitch. Um, you know, that is how you work through a press by pulling players from one side to the other. Um, but yeah, like you say, it also gives the team the opportunity to regroup a little bit. And I think this is the sort of thing that, for example, we are seeing uh, enacted really skillfully, by and large, um, by by Tuchel's Chelsea. You know, the use of those central midfielders to keep possession, recycle the ball, burst forwards if there is the opportunity to do that through someone like Kovacic, but otherwise to to kind of rely on the ability of, of the central defenders to to bring the ball forwards or to keep possession among themselves. And I, again, I think central defenders increasingly have an important role in this because if, if a team is able to keep possession for a sustained period of time, which in football only means like 10, 15 seconds anyway, doesn't it? Um, yeah then the opposition will start to drop off and will start to create more of a compact shape. And that's when when centre-backs can then bring the ball forwards, which again tends to happen relatively slowly in the first instance, even if they then accelerate past that first line of the press. And yeah, it gives, it gives a team the opportunity to start engaging movements further up the pitch. Um, so I guess, yeah, it does make sense. I think what I'm saying is that maybe at times a greater degree of pragmatism is is called for just because it, it's not going to work every time and and maybe that's a little bit curmudgeonly of me um i'm not i'm not going full allardyce here no <laughs> is, no I, that's I, not I felt like there was I felt like you you hit the right notes of your brand there. That was okay. Um <laughs> we we we've, we've got to do a little segue and I feel like if Joe was here and presenting he would say something witty and whimsical and I'm that's not really my strength. So instead, what we'll do is we'll tell the story of what happened when accidentally Adonis texted the main podcast WhatsApp group and Joe specifically oh, told us that. Oh, that didn't go well. Yeah, Yeah. so Adonis, Adonis was just making a very fair point about what happened in the West Ham Arsenal game. And Joe, who let's just say was seemingly reveling uh, in the fact that he had a week off or was, uh, in, you know, uh, the day... A day ahead of his week off, um, just sent a very angry block capitaled no vowel response to the group. Felt like it's kind of harsh. Slapped him down. Yeah, yeah I guess uh, Joe Joe needs his his Rocket League practice time. 
Or maybe he sat there coming up with complex, witty new analogies to baffle us. Just just mute the group, Joe, isn't it? <laughs> That's the thing, Adonis. It's a very, very fair point because then he did concede, like, you know, there was about a minute of awkward silence in the WhatsApp group when, you know, in, it kind of like sort of what the fuck silence. And um, yeah, and then he just said, yeah, yeah, just I've, I've, I've muted you now. And we haven't heard from him since. Anyway, um, I, I wanted to bring up something that came up in the... Uh, the WhatsApp group that we correctly used, which didn't involve Joe, which was just you and I. Uh, and that was your voice note in which you talked about how with a few managers' positions under threat uh, over the last few weeks, I'm thinking probably of um, Peter Boss at, at Leverkusen, Steve Bruce at Newcastle, a um, couple have already gone, obviously Allardyce, um, not Allardyce at Chelsea, Lampard at Chelsea, um, Mourinho at Spurs probably in the summer. You um, you gave a very elegant um slightly weirdly toned I, I wasn't quite sure where you were when when you when you were saying this it, it was it was I don't know I don't know I might have been outside having a cigarette it was quiet and it, there, were, there were moments in that voice message which were quite sinister just in tone not in anything you said <laughs> anyway you made that you made the point which was very fair that uh the group of managers who are attached or um promoted for jobs at the very top of the game that that's a group which is getting smaller and smaller and smaller do mm. you just want to re-articulate what you said because i thought it was an excellent point yeah so I, I guess it was um there are obviously some managers who are in positions at the moment i mean lampard yes has gone but you've got you've got solskjaer at united you've got pirlo at juve you know the the sort of the the ex-club legend group um but the cadre of what what you might slightly I don't know, gauchely cool super managers, seems to be very, very small. Um, and there's like a revolving cast of players that, I mean, well, not players, sorry, coaches that are, are linked with the big jobs. So now Pochettino's gone to PSG recently. He He's out of the mix. Tuchel has gone to Chelsea. He's out of the mix. Um, but they are both those sorts of names. You'd probably add in Julian Nagelsmann. Uh, you'd probably add in... Well, you're definitely adding Klopp and uh, Guardiola, but obviously I think they're, they're again at the point where they make their own running and nobody expects them really to leave those clubs uh, unless something absolutely catastrophic happens or they want to do it of their own agency. Mourinho, I think, is is probably still considered in that bracket by some people. Um, profile-wise, he's definitely in that bracket. Profile-wise, he's definitely in it in terms of his achievements, very much not so much. But what I find weird is that th that does seem like an incredibly condensed group of whom the majority are now stably in jobs that they've either just come to or don't seem to be wanting to leave anytime soon. And so if, if a vacancy opens up, let's say putatively at Arsenal, Nagelsmann will be linked with it. And then who else is there? I mean... Allegri is out of work. He's quite good. Uh, you might add Antonio Conte to that list. But but effectively, I think what we're seeing is that because managers or, or top-level coaches now are also expected to represent a club brand, to bring something other simply than tactical and, and coaching acumen... Um, the, the pool of people that could be really genuinely effective at top clubs in terms of everything they want to achieve, not just success on the pitch, but also brand promotion, commercial success, and so on, it's incredibly tiny. 
So you get really good coaches. I mean, people like Eric Ten Hag, for example, at Ajax, who just you just can't envisage them being linked with a really, really top job. Um, even someone like Hansi Flick, for example, who has won a lot of stuff with Bayern in a short period of time, he's so kind of attached to just being at Bayern that again, like, where's where's the momentum? Where are, where are the new coaches coming from? Where are the people that are are rising up from from lower levels. They might be really, really talented. Like, look at what Diego Martinez has achieved at Granada, for example. But the the jump that needs to be made between them being extremely effective at a smaller club and and entering that echelon of super managers just seems like an unbridgeable one at the moment. I'm glad you brought up Granada because that's quite interesting in a sense that I don't particularly enjoy watching Granada and you and I were talking about this a couple of days ago and I I haven't actually seen them play for a couple of weeks now I I saw them um, in the Europa League game and some odd La Liga game about a month ago and I haven't haven't really paid attention since and I I think in a way that that's part of the problem in that you have good things going on in the game but not in a way which really um, piques interest like it's not um, it's a an achievement beyond the club's means absolutely but there's no one out there at the moment who the kind of um who's kind of reached a, a critical mass of intrigue. There's not like, for instance, like do you remember when Marco Rosa was coming up um prior to getting the Gladback job, for instance? I also think like I think that's part of the problem, like a sort of a, a lack of branding, because coaches at that level of the game, at the very top, they they're not really coaches, they're priests, aren't they? They they represent little religions and and so when you've had a bad experience with, say, a, I don't know, Maurizio Sarri, you you don't go deeper into the group of coaches represented by Sarri's thinking or, or, or of um, of whom Sarri's thinking is typical. You move in a different direction. And right. so each time you move in a different direction towards a different religion, in inverted commas, <laughs> your, your choice is less and less. I, I, I don't know, like, I, maybe this is unfair or maybe this is kind of a sign of the times. I feel like when things go wrong for a manager who was previously thought to be very, you know, relatively interesting, intriguing, deserving of a good job, I feel like we damn them a bit quickly. I think uh, Lucien Favre is, is the one that I think of there. Like he's not young, Lucien Favre, but I feel like there's someone with some really interesting ideas who, um, yes, it didn't end very well at Dortmund and that consequently looks like a bit of a mess and it is a little bit of a stain on his, um, his copy book, but you just think, right, well, you can't manage an, uh, you know, a big club anymore because this has happened to you. I feel there's a bit too much of that at the moment. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, there's two other points I'd make. Firstly, I think that that while obviously there's still significant tactical variation across top European teams, it's easier, like you say, to kind of coalesce coaches into groups um, and that certainly at the very top of the game, there are certain there are certain systems and theories that that predominate to a degree that maybe makes it harder for a coach to do something genuinely innovative. Um, um, Gasparini at Atalanta, Chris Wilder at Sheffield United when he was there, th- these were coaches who really were doing something very different, and and Gasparini continues to do, but. It's harder to think of that. You you just tend to get people who are more effective or more charismatic uh, 
and they're the ones that stick out. So there's probably lots of people that are that are actually really quite good at coaching, you know, positional play or, or coaching pressing. And unless unless there's something about them individually that makes them stick out, the tactical stuff maybe doesn't have sufficient distinction or variation. I think the other point is that if you compare it to previous eras, it's it's harder than ever for somebody to pull off a surprise win. Um, yes, cup competitions still, to a degree, have that opportunity. Sur- but surprise in what sense? Surprise in the sense just that... against the odds. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, th- that there's the, 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 the financial pull of the top European teams is such that... I mean, I said this in a video that we did a while back about when uh, Porto won the Champions League under Mourinho, that, you know, uh, the idea of a, of a club outside of Europe's top five leagues, and really, if we're being honest, outside a group of maybe 10 or 12 clubs, that's effectively impossible now. Um, and that was Mourinho's break into the big time, was was showing that you could achieve something on a continental stage with an unfancied team that, uh, you know, Porto are going to go and win this year's Champions League now to make me look stupid. But, <laughs> um, but you know the point I'm making, that, it, that, that those sorts of surprises that can put a marker down and say, hey, I'm here, I deserve to be given an opportunity, that's quite limited now, I think. Um, you do occasionally get these periods where something is in fashion. So in the post-Mourinho success era... Uh, English teams were were increasingly interested in taking chances on Portuguese coaches. That was partly because tactical periodization was very in vogue. Um, but again, like these sorts of things, it feels like that's drying up. It feels like the stakes are so high. The opportunity for the big clubs, uh, sorry, the opportunity for smaller clubs to to win something is so limited that that really how a coach is showing their point of difference in a way that is significant enough for a a super club to take notice. I think that's really, really hard. And so unless you're promoted from within, like Hansi Flick, or uh, you're a club legend like Solskjaer or Pirlo, um, you've basically got to be one of about six or seven people to be in genuine contention for one of those jobs. This is one of my fears over the um, newly imagined Champions League format. Um, oh, by the way, Andrea Nelly's Juventus lost to Benevento at home every weekend. It's devastating. <laughs> Just devastating Bene- to see Benevento that. Benevento have got one of the um, the loveliest badges. The Istragioni, the witches, yes. Yeah, the yeah. yeah. It's great fun. You know, on a, on a, a not unrelated note, really, so, you know, something that was going really, really well and has been turned to shit. Really? This is the guy that we're going to trust with a, uh, you know, a Champions League format that seems to be going quite well? Okay. Anyway, anyway, this is one of my concerns because say you've got that. Um, yes, I understand that the there's going to be one 36-team league, yes, but within that there's going to be a, a, a tier system, an unofficial one of kind of elite clubs, you know, who from the top divisions are competing at that level of the game consistently, and it's going to be hard never for them to fall out of that group. So how do you become a coach within that group if you don't have prior experience? Because is it going to be a new thing where basically what we create is a kind of gilded version of that like group of English managers who just rotate around clubs that are in relegation trouble each season. 
Yeah. We're just going to, it's going to be a merry-go-round. It's just going to occur in a different place. So you have a go at Juventus, you fuck it, you have a go at Barcelona, then you roll into Chelsea or, you know, Arsenal, Man United, and you just keep going on the carousel because you are a um, quote-unquote proven commodity at that level of the game in the same way that there's always kind of, I know we've moved away from it a little bit, but for a long time there was that resistance to managers who had never done it in the Premier League or um, that's my fear. And then within that, you have to conform in a lot lot of other ways. So you have to be a particular type of character. You have to be, um, you have to fulfill a certain set of, you know, be a commercial asset. And I think you are creating not immediately, but over time, over the decades, potentially a homogenized type of head coach. And there is going to be less and less room for experimentation because if you're in a situation where you're kind of protected unless your season is an absolute catastrophe, or maybe even you have five seasons in a row which are an absolute catastrophe, you're you're uh, you're not going to take risks. You're going to go with someone that might not do great, but will be fine. You're not going to say, right, well, I'm going to promote someone with this new set of ideas that is possibly seen as a little bit of a heretic from outside and it's going to be interesting i that's a kind of that's a fear of mine and also are we going to have the exposure beneath that level for other coaches to build a reputation the same way that they can now i don't know are you going to have a gasparini for instance i know gasparini has managed up bigger clubs in the past in atlanta but are you going to have someone like that who has enough access to the top of the game to to be paid attention to if that makes sense yeah i mean (sighs) What I think could happen, to try and be a little bit more positive about it, um, <laughs> and it and it chimes partly with the news that's been reported and built today that that Xavi Alonso is being considered for the uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach job, but also um, Steven Gerrard at Rangers, for example. I think there is scope potentially for ex-players who reputationally, uh, you know, were at the top of the game. I don't think anyone would doubt that Steven Gerrard and, and Xabi Alonso were genuinely superb players. But also that they have then gone and worked not immediately in a top job, but they've both worked at youth levels. So Xabi Alonso worked for Real Madrid under-14s before going on to coach Real Sociedad's B team. Uh, Steven Gerrard worked within the academy system at Liverpool for a while before taking the Rangers job. That then affords them the opportunity, I think, to hone their skill before making a leap into really big football. And I suppose what I what I would like to see is coaches not being rushed or having the confidence to take smaller jobs when they're earlier on in their career to to build their abilities, to build their you know their ability to to manage to. To, to speak to players, uh, to, to develop a game model, that kind of stuff. And then the fact that they've got that heritage in the game as players will probably afford them those opportunities, but they should be parachuted directly into it um, because I think that ultimately will be a bad thing. So if there are instances of managers being successful following that model, I think that could be a positive thing. It does still... It does still create just a different kind of gilded cage, but it's maybe one that that has a greater propensity for development and for talent identification. I also just think it means that other football will probably be more interesting to watch. You know, I, I think Michael Cox did a piece oh, 
probably like a month or two ago in The Athletic where he was talking about how top-level European football is kind of moving towards a, a similar single tactical point of, um, you know, a certain style of build-up, pushing either wingers very wide or fullbacks very wide, creating this kind of 3-2-5 shape and attack, that sort of stuff. And, and, you know, there are variations to that, but there aren't many. And and actually, ultimately, what could happen is that, that top-level European football just becomes incredibly dull to watch from a tactical perspective and is illuminated only by moments of individual brilliance. This is a really nice segue into PSG Lyon, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And that actually it's much, much more fun to watch, I don't know, Bundesliga 2. And this is going to make me sound like a horrendous football hipster type, and that's not the point I'm making. If everything is moving towards the same point, it just isn't as much fun to watch if what you want to watch is tactical battle. I'm I'm different to you. I don't don't watch football um, with, you know, tactical battles in mind per se. What I want is the idea that interesting stuff can happen in a game and whether that's goals set piece routines um interesting results the Zweiders Bundesliga point is is interesting because I've obviously like I've moved to a city where there are two teams in the same division and um I kind of have a vested interest in the performance of both and so I've watched a lot of that division and it's interesting okay so, you know a couple of the pitches are a bit shit a few of the players are a bit of an odd shape um, and you know there are some consistency issues, but that is that is, that makes it a richer competition. Like if you if you um, if you look at Hamburg's history over the last few decades, they've become the club who they're kind of like a German Spurs in a way. They they find ways to fail. <laughs> so I kind of live. You really me. have you really have yeah. arrived at home, haven't you? Or home from home? Ah, should have just moved to Munich. Yeah, I did tell Jalen <laughs> that's what we should have done. Yeah, that would have um, been easier. But, but it's interesting because if you're a fan of those teams, yeah, okay, you you know, it probably takes a few years off your life. But at the same time, that's why you watch football. You don't watch just for the sake of, well, I want to see the 3-0 win, you know, the procession and, you know, the goal scored by my 80 million pound players all the time. Yes, of course. But, and, you know, you, you kind of want to see like, I just want to see simple things. Players improving, um, you know, problems being corrected. And I think it's easier to see that stuff at a lower level of the game because higher up, you can cover up a lot of deficiencies and flaws with very expensive, very gifted individual players. And that maybe is our, our segue to PSG against Leon. Go for it. You watch this one. I did watch this one. Uh, and I, I, got, uh, I got the piss taken out of me on Twitter slightly for saying that it was, it was a six-goal game, but it was really boring. Um, apparently that, that, that was, hey no, I, I know what you mean that was too I, on brand no I think that's very fair because I um, I woke up this morning and I watched it not live of course um, and it bored me I was yeah, watching it on exactly. the zone and it was just like yeah some good goals and you know well done Kylian Mbappe I love watching him but what an anti-climax one of the biggest games in Europe this weekend it was it was a massive anti-climax yeah I mean I thought um, that there was a genuinely electric moment for me when when Mbappe broke down the left-hand side and crossed it to Moise Keane um, and forced a a really good save out of Lopez. But that was about the only point of that match where I felt anything approaching 
excitement and i mean obviously <laughs> again i don't really get excited about what a, anything what but, a rare but, territory for you that well, there would was, be. <laughs> you know there was there was even an air of inevitability when when Verratti played that through ball to mbappe for his second goal as soon as that ball was played you're like yeah well he's going to score it, there wasn't you know i didn't see anything beyond psg having greater individual quality leon trying but not re- there was just no energy there was no fizz and and i suppose what i worry about again is if if psg with the extraordinary array of talent that they had and obviously this is the game that that neymar came back for as well um when he was subbed on you know if they were to win the champions league which i think is possible um i don't think it's nailed on by any stretch but you know they they've got the right pieces in place what does that do for Ligue 1? Does it, does it give Ligue 1 a greater degree of credibility and we can put to bed these awful Farmers League jokes and so on? Because I also watched Nice against Marseille and actually really enjoyed that game. Um, or will it just further entrench PSG at the top of that league and everything else becomes possessional and the, you know the, the best players from that league are, are hoovered up by other top clubs because frankly they know that unless they move to PSG they're not going to win anything in that league so they may as well go somewhere else and you know players like Ryan Cherky for example the 17 year old at Lyon who is a very exciting player even though he got what 15-16 minutes to show anything in this game there is no way he's going to stay at Lyon if if PSG are just going to win every time what what's the point for him what what's his challenge you know your challenge as a professional elite athlete is not to finish second consistently is it so I, I i just worry about what might happen it could be good it could make Liga much more popular and 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 teams elsewhere than challenging and players want to go there and coaches want to test their metal against the the european championships or it could just really fuck it well i this is the thing because i when i was watching i was thinking about um the sentiment filler with the slick hair is Kakare, isn't it? Looking yeah, Maxence like Kakare. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I think of a player like that who, I think he's really talented. I think he's um, in a certain type of midfield in the future. He's really going to work. He's you know very skillful, technically good player. And you think you expose someone to too many, you know, four nil down at home games at that stage of their career, and they're going to be conditioned to think of a club like Leon as a stepping stone. Yeah, and absolutely that's really damaging like i i don't i don't necessarily see that much of a problem in um in psg winning a champions league or dominating Liga because that's just a reality of the game it's not healthy no but it's just what it is and it's france is by no means the only competition where that happens uh but if someone like that is experiencing what is a humiliation humiliating result on their own ground i know they pull a few goals back but whatever really uh that's not great and well, you have this situation potentially where all the clubs other than PSG take risks on developing players or they, they shop from less than fashionable destinations. And whilst PSG can take players from Barcelona, Juventus, potentially Liverpool, Arsenal, Spurs, that, that kind of market, teams like Marseille, Nice, obviously Lyon, you're, you're dealing in reclamation projects. I mean... Memphis Depay is a really good example of that. They spent a lot of money on him and he's 
been largely excellent, you know, injuries aside, but at the same time, his stock was never lower than it was when he left Manchester United because of the things that happened there. And so you have this natural gap, which is you have a situation where where the lower clubs can never, ever catch up because they're always taking risks on players and they're always spending limited budgets on players that need time to adjust and develop. And then the point at which they might become a threat, they're picked apart by, I don't know, a team that, oh, I quite fancy Depay because he's now an off-the-peg player that can make a difference immediately. Yeah. So it feels like France, I mean, obviously, you know, everyone sat up and started paying attention to Ligue 2 when when Kante and Mahrez were, were discovered there. Um, but but the idea of, of scouting in France, obviously, I mean, there's various teams like Mainz have done it very successfully, for example. Um Leeds' best signing recently, Rafinha, came from Liga. I worry that actually, you know, effectively, that that competition just becomes a scouting pool for the other big leagues in Europe. It, it becomes an Eredivisie, Alex. Yeah, it, exactly it, it, this. But it, yeah. it becomes an Eredivisie without the Eredivisie's competitiveness because yeah, yeah, without, obviously without yes. fine or in PSV. <laughs> well yeah but also recently you know as at Alkmaar have been pretty yeah. good uh you know Groningen can sometimes threaten there there are other teams in that division as well and there's also I suppose a, you know the, the the similarity is that that these these divisions both pour a lot of money into youth development um and if you took a look at the um you know, t- top European games over the last couple of weeks, the number of French academy products that are popping up at other top teams um, because they're being poached even at like 18, 19. It's, you know, France has really nailed something, but I, I worry that their their ability to develop younger players, which all stems from, from Claire Fontaine and, and partly the work of people like Gerard Dullier, that, that that just turns them into a selling league Particularly then with the media pro situation, just being really negative about French football, aren't we? But it's no, but people should be fearful. Like the media pro situation is incredibly serious. Yeah, yeah, and And it hasn't even started to bite really yet. um, This, this is the issue. You know, you can talk about things like, um, like European Super League or a revamped Champions League format that are, from a competition perspective, are are basically devised to entrench. A particular hegemony within the game, um, and and that in itself is worrying. But it's it's the contributory situation that that operates in the background of all of that. And France, the top two domestic French leagues are to me they're a really clear example of of the circumstances that that kind of contribute to making those things uh, almost an inevitability at some point. And, and then football becomes 20 big clubs across Europe, all playing each other all the time. And everybody else is basically a feeder um, club for them. And, and that, that, that feels like it's something that's going to happen and it'll be really bad if it does. Yeah, my appetite for this has really just fallen through the floor now. <laughs> By the sorry. way, if um, people will have heard Alex mention Clairefontaine, uh, we did a video on this quite a few, I think probably about a year and a half ago now. So look that up on our YouTube channel. Very, very interesting. And um, at the time that um, Clairefontaine started to make a name for itself and started to be recognised, it was quite new to have like centres of excellence and you can have, uh, 
Yeah, France was very much a market leader in the development of um, young players in, in the kind of modern era. Anyway, we're going to have a little break and then we're going to talk about West Ham Arsenal. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Okay, we're going to do West Ham Arsenal now. First, before we do that, I'm going to give a little mention to Ozan Tufan's goal. Uh, I watched Besiktas against Fenerbahce with my father-in-law on Sunday night. He's a Galatasaray fan, so he was kind of hate-watching it and was sort of wasn't really wanting any kind of outcome. Um, but kind of, yeah, it was uh, it was just about happy with the draw. But anyway, a really really good goal, lovely um, pick-up drive inside whipped into the top corner um really good second half as well can i anyway can I just also mention very quickly you Kefren turam's performance for nice against yeah Marseille. you really liked this didn't you uh yes i really liked it um i i i went so far as to call him musa dembele-esque which Ooh, yeah, is, well, hang on which musa dembele though the, the former spurs one he just um he has this ability to carry the ball through midfield and then rather than just being press resistant and looking impressive to play a good pass after it. He was covering around the pitch a lot. He scored a header. Um, just a really impressive young player. I mean, Nice, nice are a great team to watch when things click, um, but he really stood out. Um, so that's another young French player who uh, will get picked off by somebody better soon enough. Do we have a, a position that we can nail down for him or is that kind of a work in progress? Um... I think I think he's probably an eight. Um, I think he he would work on the the left hand side probably of a of a midfield three in a kind of slightly metzalery way. He could also sit deeper um, and and be a link between the back four and the rest of the midfield. But I think what you want from a player like that is is penetrative running as well, um, the ability to carry the ball forwards into the box rather than just doing it to um to break the first line of the press i think he i think he'll probably be more effective uh from an attacking perspective if he plays slightly higher up um rather than just kind of keeping things taking over but that's the interesting thing with these young players isn't it that that they're still at that stage where i guess their their positional function and what they concentrate on can still be molded to a degree um but uh, it's it's interesting uh, nice's coach adrian ursia has a, a long history of working within youth systems um, as, as a technical director and as an under-19s coach and so on. So I think it could be very beneficial for, for Nice's younger players, people like Amin Guri as well, um, to work under a coach who's who's got that side to his game. 
That is interesting. I uh, Also, I, I went a bit sensible transfers here because I um, noted down that uh, Fenerbahce's goalkeeper, Altai, is very, very impressive. I've seen quite a lot of Turkish football over the last month or so, and um, he's, uh, he's a, a very, very fine goalkeeper. Is he quite young? Team. Yeah, he's 22. Yeah. Um, but I really like him, so if you get the chance to see him, um, probably not until next season because I'll be back in European competition next year. Um, but he's, uh, yeah, good player. He'll go somewhere. Anyway, right. Uh, West Ham Arsenal. This was an absolute wonderful, joyous bin fire of a football match. When <laughs> there was Pure just as bar, much good as bad. Like yeah. it was, it was really, really fun. It's, it's an interesting situation because on the one hand, you could say Mikel Arteta should not find himself um, 3-0 down inside what, like 35 minutes at West Ham. Sure, and then 3-1 at half-time. I think what my takeaway was, was that, okay, that happened, but he fixed it. And that's the thing that you focus on. Because obviously, things went wrong in the first half. Defending was just dismal. Like, like this, the second goal was just... I heard a few people, I think James McNicholas referred to it on Twitter as unprofessional. <laughs> that about sums up. It's like dreadful goalkeeping. Jack and not even looking after the free kick could been taken. Just rubbish. Absolute rubbish. It's just unforgivable. But like you've had a half like that and you recover. Discuss. Yeah, I the recovery was was definitely impressive. I think I think it was a weird game in that West Ham's goals did feel a little bit like they came... Certainly the first two felt like they came from Arsenal just not really being awake. Um, and I know that this was a point that was made in, in commentary because I saw it discussed that, you know, they just... They sort of sleptwalked a little bit, at least through the first 30 minutes. There were clearly players that, that were trying to inject a bit of energy in, and I know we'll we'll talk a little bit about Odegaard, um, who I thought was really, really good. Um, I agree, yeah. And interestingly, I think, you know, with Erdegaard, there's been this slight question about, you know, is, is, he, a, is he a kind of progressive eight or is he a 10? Um, you know, he does a lot of things well. It, it felt to me very much like this was the game where he became a 10 properly um, with his ability to, to play intelligent passes that close to the line to be able to get the ball into the box, also to take some shots, but at the right the moment at the right moments rather than you know necessarily just every time um but we'll, we we can we can come back to him i th- i think i think arsenal's goals resulted from arsenal being better at attacking um you know it, <laughs> sorry i don't know why i laughed at that but yeah, well, I, no, you're absolutely I, right my, my point being so so the, the the second west ham goal was just a clusterfuck right from start yeah. to finish in terms of and and it, it was interesting i'm pretty sure that that kind of goal will get greater i mean the ball was stopped it was legit but i i think the the, the protests around it will be ignored because of what happened with the lewis dunk situation uh yeah for for brighton and teams should be alive to that therefore you know teams should be thinking you can't turn your back, Alex. The Premier League can't... screwed up on a quick free kick, so teams are going to want to look to exploit this situation. <laughs> let's you, let's you, stay special. And even yeah. if even if everybody else is not awake, Leno's goalkeeping was yeah, just dreadful. reprehensible. Whereas when Arsenal scored, I, it felt like it was much more the result of of really aggressive dynamic play whether it was Chambers overlapping on the right back and firing crosses in whether it was Erdegaard pulling the strings Lacazette with a 
really good finish for that first goal. Um, hey, so did it, you, um, did it was you a thrill the... that. Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, like, because you mentioned Callum Chambers. You know the um, the the Lacazette uh, lob that was cleared off the line. Yes. Like, I don't think I've ever seen Callum Chambers play uh, like a, a lofted ball the outside of his right foot over the top of a defence before. Absolutely perfect. Brilliant. Yeah, it was it was a weird one, wasn't it? Because because yeah, Chambers yeah. Chambers played. I can't remember the other team. Oh, it was Burnley, wasn't it? Chambers plays on the right-hand side of that defence to allow them to form a three and build up with Chambers tucking in inside because he's taller, he's got experience as a centre-back. Covers the back post when they don't have the ball as well. which is Right, nice, this kind yeah. of thing. And then it felt like... And, and in that first half, you could see Tierney. Tierney was playing ahead of, uh, of the winger sometimes on that left-hand side. He was getting so far up the pitch that Arsenal had this really... Um, kind of asymmetrical three-two-five again, with with Saka really tucking in quite a lot, and Aubameyang weirdly out on the right for some of the time. And then it felt like they reverted to more of a kind of balanced approach play, with with one of the the midfielders dropping back to form that three at the back and allowing both fullbacks to push up. And all of a sudden, we see this side to Callum Chambers' game that I really don't recall seeing previously. Um, just a lot of dynamism, really good final ball a lot of the time as well. You know, it wasn't just um, that he was getting up and down. He was actually doing something with it. And right fullback has been a problematic position for Arsenal. I think it's fair to say that Bayern has not been exceptional nice. for a while. Yeah. Um, and, you know, have they accidentally, in order trying to counter one particular facet of West Ham's game, which is height, and delivery from set pieces, have they actually found a longer-term solution for that position? Adonis, you should come on for a little bit. I'm here. Yeah, how, how, how are you responding to this team? Because I don't. if I was a fan, like, as an outsider, I can see both sides of the coin. As a fan, how do you feel about it? Like, you watch... I know it's, it's easier when you come back from a deficit rather than surrender a lead, but, like, what do you take away from a game like that? I think Arteta puts it best when he talks about Arsenal being a side of two faces. I think everybody knows that about Arsenal as well. But to be able to sleepwalk against a team that's done as well as West Ham this season and still come away with a point and probably feel like we should have won it in the end as well if it had gone on for five or ten minutes more, makes me feel optimistic, makes me feel like we've got a really good side with, with problems that I do believe Arteta will fix in the end. With power, isn't it? Because like you, there was never a point really where you thought, Arsenal weren't going to come back and no. I think like we were talking the WhatsApp and Adonis made the point about like West Ham's approach to having a three goal lead was a bit small time it was a bit sort of like inferiority complex and oh please don't hurt us now we haven't got anything more to offer which I just we, we talked about this last week with the Sosolo Torino game I was watching exactly the same situation mm. like you build your lead you find yourself in, advantage, in an advantageous situation and then you're almost is so baffled by how good and how lucky and you know how well you've played that you kind of just you sit there waiting for the worst thing to happen and it's just like i just it i find it maddening to watch like i don't um there's no justification for it because you don't have to like there aren't two settings for a football team there aren't like it's not just either progressive or um ultra negative like you know, like even if you just play football manager, you know that. Like, you, you, there's, 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 like there's a couple in between where you'd be like, I was okay, literally well, thinking of football manager at this point. <laughs> yeah, but it's the same. Like, it's the same you thing. Do. If, if, like, you you if you go defensive, if you go defensive on football manager, 
you know that you're going to give the opportunity to the other team to create sustained phases of pressure. Like, I, I, I do understand that there are certain points in a game where you should try and do certain things to hold on to a lead. But it always does seem to me, like you said about the, the Sassuolo-Torino game, it seems very, very strange to abandon that which has Everything got you to the point worked. that you're at yeah. to then do something that is quite often the inverse of that, including bringing on Mark Noble. <sighs> there's surely right. there's no excuse for bringing on Mark <laughs> Noble at any point. It's, I feel a bit sorry for him because he's kind of, this is his victory lap and you know this is his sort of... Um, his farewell parade and things just keep going wrong. But the thing is, is that if you, one of the advantages, like particularly for Arsenal, for for West Ham, one of the advantages of playing progressively is that you are better at that end of the pitch. And also in West Ham's case, like it was a really smart way to approach the game. Let's not tiptoe into the match. Let's examine an Arsenal defence, which cannot stop making mistakes and stupid ones as well. Like, when when the kind of things that happen week to week um, to Arsenal occur, like the the result is uh, a lack of confidence, fearfulness, all the things which they successfully took advantage of in that um, first thirty minutes, and then as soon as Lacazette scores, you you know West Ham have to score again, and instead of pursuing that goal, you sit there and you allow them you allow like you talked about Erdegaard earlier and, and I completely agree I thought it was great I, I like where he was receiving the ball as well that that's really the kind of that was part of the number 10 thing for me but then you you make it easy on players like that you just you wait for them to load their guns and fire their shots and you just it's it's so self-defeating and I've been conditioned by what's been going on in North London and, and my own team's approach to games sometimes and that's leaking into this but it's just it's very difficult to defend because you have to, you have to retain. Okay, if you're, if you're defending a three 0 lead against Man City, fine because they're very, very powerful and they can hurt you in so many ways. And really, just you, 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 you cover up and hope not to get hurt. I understand, that's fine. Against Arsenal, like they have that power at the other end of the pitch. As soon as you start to ask questions, you create instability in their own side, and that has to be the priority. It's just, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, the energy of that game felt to me when when West Ham scored their third. A, I was convinced that if things continued as they were, that West Ham would win. But it also felt like like the kind of energy that could result in a team getting genuinely dicked. Yeah. And then the technical term. <laughs> the technical term. Yes, I like to bring that that level of thoughtfulness to my yeah. analysis. It's um, like Joe's here. It's brilliant. It's, it's... <laughs> <laughs> and then as soon as Arsenal scored, I, like it was inevitable that that it would be a draw, if not an Arsenal victory. And yeah. and it's it's quite rare to I mean, uh, you know, um Spurs allowed West Ham to come back from a three goal deficit to a draw, but that that game didn't feel as inevitable. That, well, that, that was happened more in like, like a, seven minutes. That was a well. That's yeah. true. Yeah, but it, it was, was worse also in a lot of ways. <laughs> but, yeah. Worse in a lot of, but it, but this this was a game that really I think flipped, you know, a hundred and eighty degrees from being West Ham are rampant. They could get another two or three goals here. To oh, they're going to lose. Yeah, <laughs> and and yeah. it's it's really weird to to feel the dynamic of a of a match shift that quickly. The kind of the two moments when they actually put together a couple of attacking phases, they looked like they might score. Antonio probably should have scored, 
with that effort that came back off the post. And there was another moment where Luis got in Lino's way and Jesse Lingard nearly had an open goal. Like, I, I forget what led up to that. But, you know, so every time West Ham crossed the halfway line, they were asking questions. They were still a threat in the game. And you just thought, that's your prompt. That's your prompt. That's the way to, that's your way to safety. Like, no, chase the light. Um, alas, anyway, we should probably finish because this has gone on for a long time and we'll get shouted at by Joe when he comes back. So thank you very, very much for, for joining me and Alex. Uh, have a good week, everybody. Uh, not Andrea Agnelli, of course. I hope you might get a parking ticket or step on a plug or something. Um, but goodbye from me and goodbye from Alex. Goodbye. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.